Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Alex Neely. Uh, we're at his home in Portland. It's July 13th, 2020. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for being here. Uh, first question, most important question today, why wine? Uh, really, just a lack of direction in another career path. Um, so I got into wine. I was taking a, a side odd job, uh, trying to go in a different direction um, that ended up ultimately failing. Uh, and while I was working the side job, uh, it was a fancy cheese and wine shop in D.C. Um, uh, that was just kind of there as a, a stopgap. Uh, but the guy who ran the program uh, was uh, one of them fancy psalms, uh, and I was the only employee that was willing to listen to him speak uh, at length. Uh, so I learned a lot from him. He opened up tons of bottles. Uh, I started getting into it, and I'm like, hey, this is a really neat world I didn't know existed beyond, you know, Menage a Trois and uh, other random grocery store brands. Uh, so then when uh, my other path ultimately ended, I was like, well, hey, what the hell do I do? Uh, so I was like, hey, I'll get on this wine train. Uh, and then um, I was in Portland, and I got a three-month stock boy job at New Season, stocking beer and wine, again, as a stopgap. Uh, and looking for something else, ended up at Foster and Dobbs, uh, now defunct. Uh, and I was the wine buyer and cheesemonger and just general buyer um, for, I want to say, two years maybe, uh, which was lovely. Uh, I was big into cheese as well. Uh, same thing from D.C. I learned so much about cheese. Uh, and so we had a huge, you know, case, you know, whole wheel cut to order, over 100 cheeses any given time, buying direct through distributors. Um, it was fantastic. I loved it. Uh, cheese really was my love at that point, uh, but also I was getting into wine at the same time, meeting a lot of uh, local winemakers and, you know, um, learning a lot through the reps and going to all the luncheons and stuff that they did. And uh, it came a point in, in my life where I was like, hey, I don't really want to stay in retail anymore. I want to produce things. I, I want to make my own mark. Um, and I didn't know if I wanted to go to the cheese or the wine route. Uh, and then uh, the legend that I tell is one day I was riding the bus home uh, and I, I was like, hey, what's that smell? And then I was like, oh my God, I'm that guy on the bus that smells like cheese. <laughs> Uh, and, and I was like, okay, let's go into wine. I'd rather smell like a wino than uh, some cheese guy. Uh, and so that was kind of the pivotal moment where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go into production. Uh, so I called up uh, a couple of the people whose wines I respected the most uh, in Oregon. Uh, and I ended up landing with uh, Barnaby Tuttle and Teutonic Wines in the very beginning of 2014. Uh, and... Um, stayed with him until, uh, what would it be, March of like 2020, so just recently. Uh, so I was the assistant winemaker there uh, for that period of time. Uh, and in 2015, uh, Barnaby gave me the opportunity to start making uh, small batches of my own wine uh, every year. So Libertine started in 2015 uh, with a little over two barrels. Uh, and we have slowly built from, um, from there. Uh, 
to I think our production and in our release in March of 2020 was about uh, 500 cases or so uh, and so uh, hopefully next year we'll plan to do closer to a thousand um, uh, but we've slowly built it up over the years and now we distribute to uh, Oregon Washington DC Maryland Virginia uh, Chicago um, Alberta Canada um, and then we have uh, five more that we will start supplying uh, in the next spring uh, and so we are very very excited about that that's a lot for 500 cases it is but you know what's nice is that you know the wine hits these markets and then it's just gone immediately uh, and so we're kind of like a hit it and quit it brand uh, it shows up for about two months and if you don't get in on it it's gone you know so and that's kind of where I like to be as well so how did you get from DC to Oregon uh, I moved out here when I was 18 uh, to attend Reed College I graduated from Reed and uh, didn't leave except for a short stint in 2011 when I was back there when I was working at that mm -hmm. cheese store uh, cheese and wine store so what made you want to stay in Oregon uh, I love the culture here uh, it's the reason I came out in the beginning uh, I was you know I had the choice of either going to one of many liberal arts colleges in the Northeast uh, where I would still be on the eastern seaboard uh, or you know throw caution into the wind and uh, go all the way across the country uh, and you know I never shy away from just going balls out and <laughs> being like I'm just gonna do this uh, so I decided just to up and leave and um, I I just love the culture out here. It's 180 degrees different from the East Coast. East Coast is, you know, fuck you me first. Uh, and out here is, um, you know, let's do this together. Mm -hmm. So I, I like the, uh, the camaraderie spirit for sure. Uh, also on that note as a tangent, when I left Foster and Dobbs to go into production, I just up in one day uh, gave my notice at my job without telling my wife. <laughs> Uh, and came home and said, hey, I quit my job today. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And she was like, well, you better figure it out in the next two weeks. <laughs> so, which I ended up doing. So I ended up uh, stopgapping that. It's good, it's good to have deadlines. Yeah. Well, I, deadlines. You know, I found that, you know, unless you jump in headfirst into things, you know, you can say you're going to do something forever, but you'll never get around to it until your hand is forced. Uh, so I try to do things that force my own hand. So tell me about the, the process of learning wine. You mentioned kind of working with a with a, with a, with a psalm who was imparting a lot of knowledge, opening a lot of wines for you. Tell me about what about wine intrigued you uh, as a product before you started making it. Uh, the varied expressions of the exact same varietal based on location as well as uh, winemaker technique. Uh, I found it to be infinitely fascinating. You know, it's, it works the same way as mezcal. You know, uh, it's, it's, there's so much at play that can make so many things so different and yet so similar at the same time uh, that I, I, I find it um, uh, completely endearing. Uh, also, things that I like to do are things that are impossible to be good at. Uh, like, it's why I play golf. Um, <laughs> you're, you're never really going to be a master, uh, but you can sure as shit have fun on the way. Uh, and I, I like the idea of the unattainable uh, and, and slowly moving 
somewhere closer to that. It's like I always tell my daughter, it's not practice makes perfect, it's practice makes slightly better. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's something I live by. And another Elite Trevino quote, uh, the more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> so. so tell me about, about Teutonic, tell me about your experience working there and, and learning, learning production in that way. So it's, it's fascinating what Barnaby's been able to do you know, he, he started with just about nothing and, and built his way up to what it is today, which is incredibly impressive. I think what he's done with the Riesling grape and, and making it known throughout Oregon and recognized for it uh, is extremely, uh, as a vague modifier, important. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, I think it's a wonderful thing that he's done uh, for Riesling. And, and Riesling is why I got into wine again, why I specifically reached out to Barnaby. Um, and in the way he does it is, you know, I didn't know this beforehand or going in or anything, but it's so complicated and yet so simple. Uh, it's, it's magical in that way. Uh, and, you know, it's, you know, Barnaby was the inspiration to me being like, hey, I can do this on my own, you know, without the backing of some venture capitalist or some surgeon who's retired and now needs to like put some you know money in a holding place in some vineyard or winery you can do this as an individual it's not just relegated to the elite um and and i think that was one of the biggest lessons for me you mentioned simple yet complicated or complicated yet simple however you want to look at it tell me about the the warning the the process of making wine and how kind of how it spoke to you what what about the process intrigued you uh, I think a lot of it is, you know, pushing your body to the limits during harvest. Uh, as winemakers, we have very busy times of year and very slow times of year. Uh, and when it's busy, it's fucking crazy. Uh, and when it's not, I mean, it's just, you go on vacation to Mexico, you know? It's like, there's a lot of free time to do what you want, but when the work is required of you, you bust your ass. Uh, and I didn't realize you know, again, before I got into it, I didn't realize how many logistical issues are involved. You know, how like, I mean, how it requires an immense amount of focus with all of your energy that's spent. Um, uh, it's, it, it, it's just an all-in experience. So as you, were, as you were able to make your own wine starting in 2015, what did you want, to, what did you set out to make? What did you set out to express? Riesling. Uh, again, I wanted to show different expressions of Riesling in Oregon. Um, you know, everybody, when you think of the Willamette Valley, you think of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, uh, and Pinot Gris maybe. Um, and we're such a young wine region, I think it would be incredibly arrogant to think that's the answer. You know, other places think they have the answer, and it's probably not, and they've been at it for thousands of years. You know, are, are we a Pinot Noir region? Probably not. What are we? I don't know. You know, does anybody else know? Will they figure something out in the next couple hundred years? Probably, you know, and so I'm just gonna chase the dragon and do as many like crazy things as I can uh, while I have the chance, because it's not like making beer, this is nothing against brewers, but it's not like making beer where it's like, oh, I'll, I'll just make another batch today because I feel like it. You know, you get one chance a year uh, and that's it. So what, I probably have, you know, 30 harvests left in me, maybe, probably less. And when you think about it that way, it's like you want to make everything count. Uh, so I started off with Riesling, um, the varied expressions. A lot of the Riesling that's made in Oregon is either like late harvest, super sweet and cloying for a certain market, uh, or it's 
you know, um, you know, just regular harvest, as dry as they can probably get it, or just slightly off dry again, for you know, the guy's wife who's buying all the pinot. You know, it's it, and, and I was like, there's got to be a different way. So, you know, I've been screwing around with riesling and different expressions, and so I tend to age mine a lot longer than most people. Uh, it started off by accident because my 15 I aged longer because I was terrified of starting my own brand and all the paperwork uh, and bottling it and putting it out there. And then after I did it, I was like, hey, great, this is a wonderful expression. I'm gonna start doing this every year. Uh, so what I do is I age it in barrel for, um, uh, for the better part of a year. Uh, a neutral oak on the gross leaves, uh, leave it in barrel for until right before the next harvest, bottle it, and then don't release it until the next spring. Uh, and I found that the barrel age and the time in bottle, uh, it gives it a completely unique expression. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's not, is it Oregon Riesling? Yes. Is it the Oregon Riesling we know? No. Um, but you know what? I, I think we should always challenge what, what we consider the norm. Uh, and, you know, am I going to be able to sell it? Is it going to ruin my business? Maybe, you know, maybe not, you know, but I'm still going to do it. I don't give a shit. You know, I failed so many times in my life at different things. I can fail again. I don't care. You know, I'll do dumbass stuff and ruin things. I don't, you know, <laughs> you know, if I lived in fear of, you know, I need to do it this way or else I can't sell it. Or I need to do it this way. I need to do it that way because this is what the market demands. Fuck the market. You know, like, let's create a new one. You know, I'm, I, I refuse to be bound by those conventional restrictions. Awesome. I love it. Tell me about, you mentioned kind of uh, the happy accident, living in fear of starting the brand and doing all of the, all the paperwork. So tell me about that process of starting your own brand it's and, terrifying. and finding all the logistics. So, you know, I did have a lot of help along the way, um, not just through um, the Tuttles, but also um, through their lawyer, Judy, who you probably, for everybody knows Judy. So Judy helped me out a lot, getting everything started with all the paperwork and you know, once I became accustomed to it, I'm like, okay, I'm used to this, you know, and then other states pop, I'm like, okay, I can do all this for Chicago now. I can do all this for Washington, I understand. But, you know, again, it's about jumping off the cliff. You know, it's, you know, you'll live in fear being like, I don't know, this is too much, what should I do with this? You know, should I just sell it to friends and, you know, keep it for myself or should I start a business? I don't know. But then, I mean, once you start, you can't stop. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's hard to stop a freight train. I feel like right now we're that freight train. Tell me about choosing your name and choosing your kind of aesthetic. Uh, so that took a long time, um, debating on names. And names are really tough. Uh, ended up on Libertine, uh, just because of my general lifestyle uh, and my history of Reed. Um, and it continues to current day. Um, but I, I feel it represents us uh, as a brand quite well. Uh, also, our you know complete neglect for any type of cultural norms uh, in 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 pushing the boundaries that we do. Um, and then, uh, what was the other question? Sorry, you, you sort of overall aesthetic, the look and the name. So I, I started off uh, again. I'm just going to be honest here. Uh, Olga did kind of her own project in 2015 called the Boyar Wedding Feast. And she put like this painting on the front. Um, it was like an old Russian wedding banquet, I think, or something like that. Uh, and I noticed how drawn people were to that label with no words or anything on the front. 
uh, and it's, if it's over 150 years, it's free to use. Uh, <laughs> both of which things spoke to me a lot. Free. Uh, so admittedly, I totally ripped off her idea. Uh, and, and I started, you know, I was looking at old classical crazy paintings. And I think the first one uh, I found, yes, it's it. I found this picture online. And I was like, now that I've seen it, I can't not use it. Uh, and so that was the first two vintages of what we used on the front. Uh, and I was like, you know, when I start using other vineyards and other varietals, I'll just use different painting, classical paintings and things like that. Uh, and so, um, and I also like the idea of having no words on the front because having worked on the retail side for so long, um, it's, I'm not, you know, I'm recognizing it exists, but people buy on the fucking label 90 plus percent. They just do. It's what happens, you know, and there's no getting around it. Unless somebody puts a bottle in their hand and says, buy this, they buy on the label. Uh, and so I didn't put any words on the front because it forces uh, the consumer to pick it up and turn it around to see what it is. And then the bottle's in their hand and that's half the battle. And if the bottle's in their hand and they like it, they're not really inclined to put it back down. So uh, it's, it's a bit of marketing psychology that I just kind of picked up along the way. Um, and there are a lot of other little things, but having, I think having worked in the retail as a buyer and reseller uh, helped out immensely in how I market my own wines. Uh, and then I started changing things up um, uh, with other labels uh, in different designs. And again, you know, I'm, everybody's like, you have to have a brand that's recognizable and it's a look the same. Everybody needs to know exactly what. And my whole marketing strategy has been the opposite George episode of Seinfeld. Uh, so I do everything the opposite of what everybody in the industry expects people to do. Uh, and when you do that, a, you're making a gigantic risk, uh, but, um, but it ends up working. So none of my labels are brand identified. So kind of what I'm trying to do, and, and I have new ones in the pipeline that don't look anything like any of these. You know, I don't, I don't want brand recognition based on label. I want brand recognition of what is that crazy idiot gonna do next? <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> And, and again, you know, if, if somebody sees a crazy label from somebody else, they'll probably be like, hey, that's probably that guy. And then when it's not, they're like, oh. <laughs> so it's, it's things like that that I, I kind of go after. And plus, I like pretty pictures. Uh, and <laughs> and, I, and I, I like what I see and why not put it on a fucking bottle, you know? So on that same note, you also have some interesting names for your wines. Tell us about like Acid Freak Rosé, for example, or Hopped Up on Goofballs. Uh, so the Acid Freak started in, so the Acid Freak and the Dolcetto, uh, 2017, that was the first year I made anything other than just Riesling. Uh, and um, uh, so that fall of 2017 is when I first released my 2015 and 2016 Rieslings. So I took out a brand new white wine in November, which was the worst idea ever. Uh, and so I just hit the market with a big thump. I mean, nobody buying anywhere. I was like, what did I do with my life? I'm totally fucked. I'm gonna have to start all over again. And I was like, whatever, you know, nope. And I, then I have all this fucking wine in barrel. I was like, what am I gonna do? Uh, and so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to stop and take everything off the market. I'm not going to try to sell anymore. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I took a trip to Mexico, uh, ate a bunch of LST that I smuggled into the country, uh, chilled out on a beach for a week, 
uh, came back and kind of started rethinking my approach to sales and marketing because what I was doing wasn't working. Uh, and, um, you know, I was tasting through barrels uh, that I had sitting there. And then I had that one barrel of the accident and I didn't even know I was going to make a separate wine out of it. Okay, so what happened was I had I had I got a bunch of dolcetto from Sunnyside Vineyard, and I got I think like three and a half barrels of it or something out of the press. And there's not much you can do with a half barrel uh, after it's done fermenting, uh, because then it has a ton of headspace and you're screwed. You know, you'd have to put you know an uh, an, uh, an inner gas over it every other day, uh, and so. I, it was still fermenting. I was like, I'll deal with it later. Riesling always comes in at the end of the season. And so uh, I was pressing off my Riesling. I had filled up the holding tank. Uh, it was late at night and I had extra in the press pan. I didn't feel like cleaning anything else. It wasn't enough to put in there. So I was born out of laziness and lack of space. And I looked over at the half full Dolcetto barrel and said, fuck it. I've had Riesling from Piedmont before. Just pumped it into the barrel just to get rid of it. Uh, and it co-fermented and it was lovely. Um, and so when I came back and tasted it, tasted it before bottling, I was like, you know what, this could be really good. And so I did some blending trials and ended up doing 50-50 Dolcetto Riesling. Um, and, and so it's not like a red post-ferment mixed with a white post-ferment. You know, it's like a lot of people are like, oh, you can't blend red and, you know, white finished wine. Well, it's not, you know, it's rosé. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was delicious. And so um, in that one I did as an homage to kind of, you know, my, my, my sitting down and realizing I needed to change my approach and what I was doing while still, while still keeping what I was doing. You know, and, and it, it's just like life. There's so many different facets and so many different directions in what you're into. You know, it's like, let's, let's let the brand reflect that as well. Uh, and so then I, um, I Googled uh, psychedelic image uh, and, found, <laughs> and found the picture of the lady on the beach from uh, Larry Carlson. And I was like, this is amazing. This is it, you know. Um, uh, and so I contacted him, bought the rights to it. Uh, and then, um, and then use that as the label and then release it with the Dolcetto Caravaggio, uh, and, um, another, uh, Riesling. And when I took those out into the market and I put, had people taste the rosés first and then the Rieslings, I sold so much fucking Riesling, uh, rather than showing up with two Rieslings and being like, Hey, I'm this little guy. You want to <laughs> buy some Riesling? You know, it just doesn't work. Uh, and, and that's really what propelled me into a different arena uh, and then I was like, hey, you know, if if this works in this this branding that isn't even similar at all, like, let's just blow it out of proportion and make nothing match at all. Uh, and so that's kind of where I've been going. And in the fact that, you know, you can do something so stupid and have it work is just so gratifying to me. <laughs> Tell me about Hopped Up on Goofballs. Uh, so that one, um, going back even further, I think, I think again, it was like the 2017 harvest. Uh, Derek Brown, who used to work with Teutonic, uh, he was my cellar buddy. 
uh, and you know, I think it was, I can say their name now because they're not in business anymore. Bridgeport came out with like a rose IPA and we were like, get the fuck out of here with that shit. Like, oh, you soak the barley to get the color off of that, you know, and be like, because they're just trying to get it on our cash cow. Because let's, let's look at everything in economics, right? Rose is fashionable because it's a quick way for winemakers to make cash and pay their farmers. That's all it is. It's like Beaujolais Nouveau. You know, it's, it's just a way to get cash flow. Um, so it's fantastic that it's taking off. Uh, but <laughs> you also can't sell for as much. So there's, there's a lot of give and take. But anyway, um, we were upset that they had uh, stepped onto our court, if you will. Uh, and so we were joking that we should, you know, make a... Uh, uh, make a wine and throw a bunch of fucking hops in it, you know, and, uh, and join their hops arms race. Uh, and so the line I like to use is if you're going to play on our court, we're going to dunk all over your ass. Uh, and so not that year because I didn't have anything I wanted to sacrifice, <laughs> but the next year I really shit the bed on this one batch of wine. Cause I was like, I'm King Natty and I don't need to use sulfites at this period. I'm so great. And I totally fucked up the wine. Uh, it was, not pleasant to me. I didn't enjoy it. Uh, so I was like, I wonder what happens if I add a bunch of hops. Uh, so I did some blending trials, um, added a bunch of hops to it. Uh, all the flaws became imperceptible. Uh, and now people love the wine. Uh, so it, again, it's a lot of things go wrong. It's figuring out how to make them right. Uh, so instead of just putting shit down the drain, uh, you figure out another way to do it, uh, create a market that doesn't exist, uh, and make some money. And now I learned my lesson of what not to do in wine production uh, and not get over arrogant uh, in, in terms of, um, well, I'll still push limits, but, you know, it's, it's, it just fixed it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then this year, I again didn't have any, um, any raw material I was really willing to part with, um, but I did sacrifice one barrel and just made the hop to bung goofballs for the Seattle market because Seattle did extremely well with it. It got into a bunch of super fancy places up there that I really respect uh, and love them. Uh, like Lorsaw, uh, uh, Vinny's Raw Bar, which I'm not sure is open anymore. And, uh, but anyway, they did really well with it. So I just made it for the Seattle market. Portland didn't do okay. I mean, I, got, I sold six bottles to... Um, Belmont Station, which is just a good ego boost, but they probably still have two of them. You know, I, I saw the other day somebody posted it on Instagram and Hollywood Liquor uh, bought like six cases from the very beginning. And they, they were like, I just got this at Hollywood Liquor for 12 bucks, which is four bottles and $4 less than what I sold it to them for. <laughs> I was like, shit, I should buy some of that and go send it to Seattle. <laughs> But, uh, but you know, it's things like that. Certain things work in certain markets and they don't in others, you know. I mean, you can get, I mean, I could be offended all day long that they're selling it for 12 bucks a bottle or I could just not give a shit and laugh it off. Uh, and, and, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, it's a really cool wine. I was shocked at how well the hops integrated. Um, and it, I mean, it's tasty, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with it. Am I going to keep doing it? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, I'll probably just find something dumber to do. <laughs> Make a bigger mistake, fix it some other way. Well, we've also done some interesting things with, with one of your Rieslings, which is made with Botrytis. So tell me, about, tell me about that one. Yeah, so that was 2016. Uh, Botrytis is a unique beast in Oregon. Certain vintages, it can grow really well. Other vintages, and a lot of people spray for it, so it doesn't even show up. 
Uh, and then, and, and then if the rains come, it turns into this gross pink slime. I mean, it's, it's really vintage based on how Botrytis shows up and whether, you, you know, it's worth it. Uh, so in 16, it was pretty heavily botrytis -ized. Uh, and you know what, I'm very, very, um, growing season based in my winemaking style, you know, having worked vineyards for so long, I realize how different everything is. And so I'll, I'll change my technique every year based upon, you know, how the fruit comes in the door at the very end. Uh, and so that year I was like, well, shit, I mean, this is really pretty. So I just stepped all over it, uh, and let it soak in a cold room for five or six days like it was a really long time and i in, in one of the techniques i found if you just step on it and let it soak even if it's in a cold room it'll start going volatile pretty quickly so you have to keep stepping on it every single day and moving it around and mushing it around uh and being and you do have to put a teeny bit of you know sulfite as a protective you know over the top um and you there's even i mean you could put an inner gas over the top to protect as well over that. Anyway, boring shit. Anyway, so I, I just really wanted to showcase the botrytis, so I want to let it soak with the skins and the juice for a long time. Uh, and then uh, pressed it off, uh, barrel fermented it, and I don't, you know, I don't halt ferment. I don't, I don't try to make my wines any particular style. I try to let them create themselves as much as they can. Uh, and so, you know, some of my Rieslings have 10 grams per liter RS, some have 23, some have zero, you know, it's just what it wants to do. Uh, in that year, it went bone dry. Uh, so it's like a bone dry, uh, botrytis sized Riesling, uh, which, so this is my aging palette right here. Uh, so I still have like five or six cases of it. Um, and I open them periodically to see how they go over the years. Uh, my, you know, um, my arrogant goal is to have a purely natty wine, have a 10 year shelf life, uh, at least. Uh, so far, we're doing pretty good. Uh, so uh, we're just gonna keep it rolling as much as we can. Uh, but yeah, I'm really proud of that wine. And you know what, I never made it again because the vintage conditions didn't you know, account for that. Uh, and so, you know, some years, you know, I'll do you know, skin contact, cold macerations. Some years I won't, you know, I'm like, this fruit, you know, isn't as pretty as I thought it would be. Or, you know, it's like, you know, it's got some like a, a teeny bit of black rot on it. Let's just fucking get it in the press and let it get it off, you know? Um, so it's all those things kind of come into play. Uh, and when you're making things that are vintage based, like take for example, the Syrah um, that I started getting from the Willamette Valley. I had no idea how to make it. I've never fucked with Syrah before. Uh, and when it came in, the, the acid was, you know, through the roof in the bricks, the, the sugar content was really low. And I was like, this is going to be a really low alcohol wine. I was like, what am I going to do with this? So I made it wrong three ways. I made it into a direct press white wine. I did a four day cold soak, heavy rosé, uh, and then a red wine in the way they developed differently. Like the direct press had way higher alcohol. The direct press was like 11 and a half. And then the red was like 9.95, both bone dry. There's all sorts, of, I'm not a Scientologist. I don't understand how all this shit works. I just know what happens. Uh, and so um, I really like the varied expressions of it. And by doing that, that first year, I'm like, hey, this, the red wine was my favorite expression, the white being my second. 
uh, favorite expression this year. What am I going to do? I have no idea. You know, we'll see what the what the grapes look like at harvest. You know, um, what sold the best and for the most the red. Am I am I concerned about the money? Kind of, you know. But you know, I'll do whatever I think is whatever the growing season dictates. Um, in my opinion. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because you 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 don't you don't have a ton of production experience and yet you feel the confidence to make those kinds of decisions, kind of on the fly, not really going into each season have, with a with a set goal in mind, but kind no. of reacting. So tell me about building the knowledge and confidence to make those kinds of decisions on, on in the moment. We made a lot of wine at Teutonic. Uh, I feel fully confident in all of my abilities uh, from my experience and uh, mentorship from Barnaby. Hundred percent. So what do you, um, are there still tools that you haven't used yet that you're excited to try? Are there things that you're like, are, are solutions to problems that haven't arisen yet that you're excited to try out? Fuck if I know, they'll happen. You know, it's, again, you know, if you try to, if you try to, you know, predict the future, you're going to be wrong every single time. Um, you know, life comes at you fast, you know, but, the, you know, it's, it's true. You, problems arise you recognize them, you deal with them, you solve them, you move on. And and that's just what's gonna happen. It, I have zero idea what the future holds for Libertine. I have no idea. Um, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll just ride the train, see what happens. Um, yeah. So going back a little bit to when you're getting started, tell me about uh, finding vineyards you wanted to work with. What, what were you looking for in vineyard sites specifically? And as you've added beyond Riesling, what have you looked for on, in sites? Uh, initially, what I was looking for was somebody to sell to me. Um, being, <laughs> you know, being a nobody and starting off nowhere, you're, you're not, you don't have the contacts. You don't, it, it's just hard to just find fruit. Um, you know, so I started off getting fruit from Lavelle Vineyard. I worked with them for two years. Um, uh, moving on in the years past, I've found other people um, to deal with, and I started focusing on. Uh, and plus, as my vineyard experience grew, uh, I I now have the knowledge to give a cursory glance at any vineyard and tell you all of their farming practices in about thirty seconds. Uh, so that helps a lot. Uh, my you know relationship web has grown a lot. Uh, that helps as well. Um, I now specifically seek out um, warm climate varietals in the Willamette Valley. Uh, it's no secret that our climate is changing uh, ever so slightly. Uh, so I am uh, kind of trying to get ahead of that uh, by picking up the contracts of those areas, such as, so now I'm working with Dolcetto, Tempranillo, Syrah. I've got some line on some Albarino that I might pick up. Uh, and I'm constantly putting, you know, feelers out there. And again, it's shit nobody else wants to work with. Uh, and I, I learned that lesson, you know, from Barnaby as well. You know, he was picking up like Chosilus, you know, and Sylvaner when nobody wanted to touch that stuff. You know, and the farmers were so grateful anybody would even take it off their hands <laughs> and not put it as like a 1% blend in some Pinot Gris, you know, and, and now it's super fashionable and it's hard to find. Uh, and it's it's that type of thing. It's I feel like with every new, with every new step the wine industry takes, it's all the shit nobody wanted before. 
Uh, and, <laughs> hip, hip rewind. Yeah, and you know, it, there'll probably be a backswing on that too. You know, people will probably stop drinking Gamay. Oh, don't say that. You know, like, but Gamay not be fashionable in 10 to 15 years. And right now it's on fire. People are selling Gamay grapes for more than Pinot Noir in the Valley right now. It's bananas. <laughs> so, um, and then pet nets. You know, it's just lazy, sparkling wine. You know, are people going to drink lazy, sparkling wine in 20 years? Probably not. But <laughs> right now, you, I mean, people just can't make enough of this stuff. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I like pet nat, nothing against anybody, but um, it's it's method ancestral, you know. Just give me an old bougie Cerdan and I'll be fine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah. So uh, one of the things you do is you make, you make a number of wines that are kind of non-traditional in color, yellow, orange, etc. kinds of wines. Tell me about uh, producing wines with those kind of colors and then, and then you say finding a market that doesn't exist or, or, or put, fitting them into a place where people maybe aren't looking for them. Um, well, again, you know, I don't know the colors until right before bottling. They change so much. Like, like when I tried to do the direct press, Saran, the direct press Tempranillo, the shit's like a red wine in barrel when it's fermenting and you're just like, oh, I'm so screwed. What am I going to do with this? <laughs> it's like, and then, you know, all the color drops out after cold stabilization and like the sulfite right before bottling. Um, and I mean, you learn that that's going to happen so it doesn't freak you out too much. Uh, but, um, but in, in, I don't worry so much about the marketing aspect. I have really, really good partners and distributors uh, who do a fantastic job. Uh, and really, the, the market right now for my generation and people younger than me, they want that stuff. They don't want to drink what their parents have been drinking. You know, they don't give a shit about Robert Parker and his points or like massive cabs, you know, and, and flavor bombs that will explode in your mouth or stuff that will pour like motor oil. You know, they, they want something different and unique. Um, like themselves, uh, but it's but it's true, you know, myself included. You know, I don't want to drink run-of-the-mill shit. You know, I want something that's crazy and out there. Uh, and and luckily, the market supports that right now. Again, will it forever? Probably not. Um, but it does right now, and it works out really well for me. Um, you know, and yeah, I mean, it's just a nice convergence of everything together that I think why we've been, you know, moderately successful so far. Uh, it's, it's, it's been almost all by accident and yet so perfect at the same time. Uh, I'm very grateful for it. So you've talked about this in a couple of your answers, but I'm curious if, if you had to define your winemaking philosophy, how, how would you define it? Uh, growing season dictated, um, and then, uh, fearlessness and ruthless experimentation. Should I bring him down here? Is that going to be loud? Oh, good. Doesn't matter? Okay. Uh, I'd say fearlessness and ruthless experimentation. Uh, you, you can't be scared to try new things, uh, and you should always be trying new things as much as you can, uh, whether it's in small batch, large batch, whatever you can. Uh, take, for example, um, the non-vintage Solera Riesling that I've been making. So in 2017, um, I had some, like, excess uh, because you're really restricted when you do neutral barrel ferments and aging to like 60 gallons no more no less it needs to be fucking 60 gallons so you have these like you know five to 15 and a half gallon kegs of just extra stuff and it's fun to screw around with them so you know surface yeast grows in oregon nobody wants to admit it or talk about it because it just means you're off your topping schedule on your pinot um 
But so I did some like sherry trials, non-fortified, uh, with small batches of Riesling. To my delight, it worked really well. Uh, I really liked how it turned out. And then I was like, oh shit, I still need topping wine for my 17 Riesling. And so I used that to keep putting over the top. And so my 17 has a, a good portion, not a, a small portion of those sherry trials in them, right? And so um, when it came to bottling the 17, I, I initially started, I stopped because it's a massive fucking pain in the ass, but I was using these bottles for the first three years, mm -hmm. um, and I could only get uh, like 56 cases of them or something, and I had 70 to bottle, or yeah, somewhere around there, and so it left me with a half barrel, and I was like, well, what the shit am I going to do? Uh, and I was like, you know what? I'll let it oxidize and sherry it. And there's a couple tricks that I use non-intervention wise um, that involve, you know, moving things around minor sulfite program and um, CO2 um, to be able so it doesn't get the uh, what I call Jesus wine, you know, the oxidized communion wine. Uh, so it doesn't get that flavor to it, uh, but it, it develops quite nicely. Um, and so I let that half barrel go when the fruit came from the same vineyard the next year and it came out of the press. I put some of that juice and filled the rest of the barrel up, let it referment, um, and then let that process happen again. Mm -hmm. And then bottled 20 cases of these little guys. Um, and so this has 17 and 18 in it. Then when I, then I did the same thing when the, um, when it came in in 19. And so now the barrel's, you know, oxidizing again with 17, 18, 19, and then in like August or September, I'll bottle another 20 cases of those uh, and just keep it rolling uh, as long as I possibly can. Um, and again, it's like that wine only exists because I couldn't get enough glass. Otherwise, I never would have done it. And it's little logistical things like that that come into play more often than you would expect. And how you deal with them, like you say, you know, what's next? What's, I've no, who knows what's going to happen next time? You know, when some, something forces your hand, you have to make decisions on the fly, and then you come up with a product that, you know, doesn't exist. Is that going to define Oregon Riesling in the future? No. <laughs> you know, is it, it's not going to be our sherry. It's not going to be anything like that. But maybe somebody will see it and be like, hey, what if we did this on top of that and it snowballs into something and becomes totally unique? You know, Madeira didn't start off as fucking Madeira being like put up in somebody's attic. Bullshit. The only reason it went on that, you know, ship out there, you know, the story of Madeira. The story of Madeira is that they put barrels because their wine sucks because it's such a hot climate. They put a bunch of barrels on an old timey ship. It went to go sell it somewhere in like Southeast Asia and then two barrels made the trip back that they forgot about. And after all the heat and everything, they're like, wow, this is delicious. It got cooked. So it's cooked wine, essentially. And now they put it up in hot ass attics uh, to make it. And it's a ex luxury product. Uh, and it's stuff like that. You know, is that story true? No, they probably just couldn't sell it and it got too hot. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, and it's, and, and Sherry didn't start as fucking Sherry Champagne. Somebody probably just, something re-fermented in the bottle you know, and they're like, wow, this tastes pretty good. How about we start developing this technique? You know, there's all this legend to it, but really what happened, it was an accident. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody forgot about somebody, something, somebody fucked something up, and now it's like, it defines a region. Mm -hmm. uh, and so little things like that happen all the time um, and don't end up panning out. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, that's what I love about wine. It is so varied. Um, you know, that new thing could happen.
It could, mm -hmm. uh, and completely redefine a region. So I'm curious, as, as someone who wants to constantly sort of push forward and, and try new things and, 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 like you say, force your own hand, the, the pendulum swings back and, and suddenly that's not in fashion anymore. Do you, do you, would you pivot to be a more traditional winemaker or would you keep trying the same thing you're trying? I'd absolve the brand and do something in a different industry. It's, it's what I would do. I mean, if, if what I'm doing isn't making me money, I'm not just going to be some chump making over-oaked, you know, Pinot Noir trying to sell it with guys driving yellow Corvettes. I don't give a shit about them, you know? I mean, everything has its place, right? But it's not for me. And so that thing can still exist. I don't, you know, great. And sometimes I like to drink it. I mean, I'll just throw out a name. I fucking love Beaufrere. The wine's delicious. It's delicious, right? Is it what I would make? Absolutely not. I'd never do that. Uh, but, you know, it's it's one of those things. No, I would not change anything I'm doing at all. You know, if, if what I'm doing isn't accepted in the market, I'd just pivot and do something else. So you mentioned before we started that you're, you're working in a new space now. So tell me about, the again, the logistics of setting yourself up in a, in a new place, new vineyard sites, and a new, and a new winemaking facility. Yeah, so the new facility will be fun. It's, you know, there's certain base equipment in any winery that you just know your way around. Um, but it, it will take some time to get used to, you know, a lot of it is logistical placement of flow of movement. Um, a lot of which, you know, Barnaby and I had worked in very, very small spaces, uh, making lots and lots and lots of wine. So I got very, very good at, you know, placing things around, you know, in, you know, both of us, it's like, y you just figure it out, man. It's, it becomes like a second nature to you. Um, so learning a new space will present its own challenges. You know, I'm sure I'll, you know, stack shit in my way a million times before I don't. Um, but it's just, it's just part of the deal. Um, it'll be strange to make wine back out in wine country again. Uh, instead of, you know, along Powell, uh, which again, both of them have their, their positives, you know, it's like along Powell, it's like, oh shit, the fruit delivery's late. Let's walk down the street and get some whiskey, you know? So, and you know, out there it's like, oh, I guess I'll set up my tent, you know? Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it'll be a lot of, a lot of challenges, but I mean, that's the fun of it, right? If I did the same thing over and over again, every year, I'd want to blow my brains out. Uh, and so, um, I, I like being presented with new things and challenges because otherwise you, you lose your passion, you know, you just stop caring and it just because becomes motions, you know, mm -hmm. and who wants to do that? You talked earlier about basically trying to double, double ish or about double your size this year. Uh, as you look for new things to do, what else, what else is on the horizon for you in terms of things you want to try, varietals you want to work with or want to try to find? Or projects you want to undertake? Uh, again, like I said, warm climate varietals. Um, Riesling, so I don't think I've mentioned this on camera yet, but we manage a uh, three-acre Riesling vineyard that was planted in 1990. Uh, Barncat, it's in Sherwood. It is uh, 100 feet from the boundary of the Chehala Mountains AVA. Uh, so Chehala Mountains AVA. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, and so that's where I like to spend a lot of my time in messing around in that vineyard. Um, you know, and I try different like pruning tactics and things like that, but nothing, you know, fancy or anything. One thing I have had in mind is, you know, if, 
my whole thing is that I really like the idea of not having overhead and being tied to something. I like to be stone free and be able to fly anytime I want. Talking about absolving the brand, my daughter's 12. When she turns 18, am I still gonna make wine? Maybe not, maybe I'll go do something else. But if I have a winery and a press and like all this equipment, I'm tied to it and I'm, I'm married to it. I can't leave it, you know? So I try not to have those types of things anchoring me down. Um, but there is one region in Oregon that I've been spying that nobody's touched, that is relatively untouched, um, even in terms of where people live, uh, that I think would be absolutely impeccable for growing Riesling. Um, do I want to buy land there and start a Riesling vineyard that's not even gonna produce fruit for five years and put all that money and labor in to something that might e not even work? Maybe. Um, but, you know, I, I have ideas, but I'll probably never do it. And then once I decide I'm not going to do it, I'll tell other people so they can. Mm -hmm. um, but I've studied, you know, I've studied the soil, studied the climatology. I, th I, th I think it's totally right, man. But um, I'm just not willing as an individual to make that investment um, in tying myself down to something like that. I don't think people understand what the work managing vineyards takes, mm -hmm. it is a lot, like all the fucking time. It's really, really difficult. Um, it's, it's, it's more than you would ever expect. Uh, and I don't think the people who work the vineyards get nearly enough credit uh, for what they do. You mentioned that was one of the things you were kind of proud of earlier was your 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 vineyard knowledge now being able to kind of scope a site pretty quickly and decide if it was a site that intrigued you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tell me about that, developing that, and, and and learning about the work that goes into vineyards and what maybe what surprised you about it. Uh, again, how difficult it is. I mean, and how non financially viable it is. Um, really, I mean, farms don't make money. They just don't make money. Uh, unless it's massive, uh, like on a huge scale. Um, but it's, I, I mean, it's just surprising they even exist, you know, in terms of people making money. Um, th that's what I was most surprised by, uh, how quickly the vines grow. Like certain, during certain days or weeks in the summer, I mean, you can watch them grow. It's bananas. Uh, and they take so much care um, and attention uh, and it can get away from you so quickly. And you know, I've had years where, you know, I've shit the bed. You know, I'm, I, I think if, if you go, if you do everything perfectly every year, you're fucking lying, you know? And so I'm, I'm more willing and ready to admit uh, when I do screw up because, you know, everybody does and everybody learns from them and moves on. And, you know, I've had vintages where I, I definitely shit the fucking bed uh, and other ones where it's been fantastic, you know, and I, I realized what I did uh, I don't make the same mistakes again uh, and go on from there uh, and try different canopy management styles, try different spray programs, try different, you know, all these different things. And um, and you just get a certain touch for it. Uh, and now I think I'm in a comfortable position. Um, uh, but it took a while to get there. I mean, I, what is this? I think it's my like seventh growing season. So and I'm, I feel like I barely have a grasp on it, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> so. 
So one thing I thought was interesting you talked about earlier was about your, your, your people your generation and younger, how they're looking for different and unique things uh, to try, not necessarily their parents' wine. Uh, I'm curious, uh, as you've been in the industry, what are the, is that, is that, has that changed? Is that something that's newer each year, or, or has that always been the case since you've been in the industry? Are people always looking for non-traditional wine? I feel it changes based on the market. So when I started making you know, wines, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna make like natty ass wines, I'm not gonna add shit, I'm not gonna filter, I'm not gonna fine, I'm gonna use wild yeast and all this stuff. And then I saw what's going on just in, you know, Portland, and, uh, and I was like, damn man, I am like, this is so passe, this is over, what am I doing? I'm like, way, way I'm getting into this way late in the game. And then I started talking to distributors on the East Coast, this shit hasn't started yet, it hasn't even started. Um, the wave isn't even cresting. Um, we are, it's spreading like wildfire too. Uh, so, uh, you know, I always joke, I go back to the East Coast pretty regularly and I always joke with them and be like, okay, this is what you're gonna be drinking in five to 10 years because this is what's cool now in Oregon. You know, and they're like, oh, shut up. We're not gonna drink that sour beer. That shit's gross. I go back there in five years. They're like, check out this sour. Oh, this, this sour, this sour. It's, it's like clockwork. You can totally predict what's gonna be big on the East Coast by what's been happening. Portland's like an incubator. It's crazy. Like I just watch it happen uh, and it, it predicts other markets. Uh, it's, it's kind of bananas. Um, and, but so, and again, I think I'm like behind the times and yet it's, it's, it's just starting mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's catching on, you know? So, uh, and it, every, every place goes through their own natural development, um, no pun intended. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you can watch it happen in real time and know, it's like looking into the future. Um, and, and it's working out really, really well for me. So, and it, it, it kind of is like a joke, but it's true. I was talking to one of my distributors, or my distributor up in Washington, and he was like, so why natural wine? And I'm like, well, a little guy like me making big over oat shit, you know, trying to sell to rich people, like that's not gonna work. You know, of course I have to do it this way. And then of course I have to do it this way because it's a lot cheaper. I don't have to pay for finding a filter. I don't have to pay for additives. I don't have to do all this shit. And it's, you know, is it, you know, a better way to do things in a philosophical way? Yeah, probably. You know, I love doing it this way. I feel it's really ch way more challenging to know that if you screw something up, you can't add something to fix it other than hops. <laughs> and so, <laughs> uh, but it's, it makes you, it makes you way closer with your wines, you know, tasting them constantly, making, sure the process of fermentation is going the way you want it and taking non-intervention intervention is ways like if if something's going reduction get, reductive give it more oxygen you know if something's like starting to slow down and ferment but you'd like it to go faster because it end up you know like with 100 grams per liter residual sugar then you put it up higher in the stack so it's warmer up in the ceiling so it you know it cranks it up a little bit stir the leaves a little bit get them going around you know don't add a bunch of fucking yeast nutrient or like dap to try to you know it's like giving a crack cocaine you know it's, it's um but anyway so um it's yeah, i think it's a more it's more fun for me to do things that way uh, but you know, look at the practical and economic side. Yeah, it's it's cheaper and easier. Uh, and again, the old joke I like to use. You know, it's I, I think um, 
you know, filtering, in my experience, tasting it going in and out, it's like fornicating with a prophylactic. Uh, it takes away all the feeling uh, and all the fun out of it. Uh, and so it's, it's, it strips it of its true beauty, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people disagree with me and that's fine. Um, I'm not making their want, you know. I'm, you know, everybody has their own approach. You know, is mine right? No. You know, is theirs right? Probably not either. You know, nobody's right. It's just what you want to do uh, for your own thing. It's like your own little world. Um, and if people accept it, great. And if they don't, you know, I'll go work at New Seasons again. <laughs> Sell someone else's wine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, I'm curious about the, the step for you from being an assistant for such an interesting an interesting and unique place like Teutonic and working with Barnaby and and then taking the step. What were the what were the biggest maybe surprises or challenges for you making your own product entirely on your own versus working uh, for another company? What were the biggest like the biggest challenges to your winemaking slash sales uh, perspective? I guess uh, as you stepped out on your own. Um. Challenges, um, opportunities. I would, I would say, you know, I, I did bring up earlier about how hard it was just taking out Riesling on the market, and that was a crash and burn. Um, really, in the market, we are very, very lucky and appreciative to have had uh, uh, great success. Um, so, really, since that initial push, uh, it's. It's been really, really, really nice and not challenging. Um, in terms of, I'd say the difficulty of making wine in Barnaby's space would be sneaking in extra barrels every year without him noticing. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I... You know, I had such a wonderful time at Teutonic. I, I learned so, so much from Barnaby. I, I feel more making my own wine in the space. You know, with, with Teutonic's wines, I would make the wines as Teutonic would want them, mm -hmm. as Barnaby would want them. I would never, you know, deviate from anything that wasn't Teutonic, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, the, I'm an employee. You know, I'm making those wines, specifically those wines, um, you know, for and with them. Um, and so doing my own, I'd say I really liked the freedom to have, to be like, I can make these in any fucking style I want. Um, I'm trying to think of a better way to put that. But, <laughs> but yeah, with, with, with Teutonic's wines, I was always concerned with, I want these to taste like Teutonic wines. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess one of the challenges was making mine not taste like Teutonic wines mm -hmm. because that's the only way I had made wines before. Mm -hmm. um, I think I succeeded in that greatly. Uh, we take, we have pretty similar core approaches. And again, that's because he fucking taught me. Uh, we have pretty similar core approaches, but then we diverge pretty quickly and go on different sides of the spectrum. Um, I guess the challenge was just learning my own lessons and fucking up on my own. Yeah. Yeah, that was a tough one for me. Yeah, I don't know. But again, we've, you know, we've been very, very lucky of how 
receptive people have been to our wines. Um, so we're very grateful for that. So I, I heard you earlier when you say you have no idea what's happening next for, for Libertine Wines, and that's that's fine, but I'm, I'm curious if you, that does eliminate one of the questions I was going to ask you, but I'm curious if you have, is there something that if you if you left the industry today, you would feel like you hadn't accomplished it? Is there something you still want to accomplish? Is there a size you want to get to or, or some, a product you want to create that you haven't done yet? Uh, I never want to make more than 1,500 cases a year, ever. That's, you know, I've I've talked to a lot of people in the industry I've, I've seen a lot, I, I've run a lot of business plans, I'm capping out at 1500 I'll never make more than that, I can do all that by myself, um, maybe a teeny bit of help, but um, that's one of the, the only restriction I've placed on myself. Um, I really don't feel like I've pushed the boundaries enough, I feel like there's more out there I haven't even thought about because the opportunity hasn't presented itself. Mm -hmm. um, there's more, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I just don't feel like we've been stupid enough. I just want to get stupider. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've no idea. I, I just, I, I, I kind of fly by the seat of my pants in pretty much every single thing that I do. So uh, I'm sure plenty of opportunities will present themselves uh, for, uh, for new styles. Uh, certainly that, that Solera stuff is one of the ones I'm most proud of um, because that's not something you see every day uh, anywhere in any region. Uh, and I want to do more things like that. Uh, whether they're good or not, that's for people to decide. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the more stuff we do like that is for everybody. Uh, the more stuff, the m more we push the boundaries, the more w we'll learn about ourselves and our region. Tell me, uh, someone trying your wine for the first time, what would be the ultimate, the ultimate takeaway you'd like to hear from them? The ultimate, either compliment or reaction to to trying one of your wines. I've never had anything like this. Always. I've never had anything like this. I just want to be, you know, I make some stuff, like the Dolcetto is really, really pretty. It's a really nice four-day skin contact rosé. Um, in two years, 17 and 19, it's beautiful. It's a nice drinking wine. 18 was bananas because the acidity was so high I, I, and I knew it wasn't going to go through mallow. It did in 19. But in 18, I knew it wouldn't go through mallow. So that's why I gave it four days, was because I wanted it to be a bridge to a red wine. So the secondary fermentation of mallow lactic, pretty much every single red goes through it. I taste a lot of red wines before they've gone through mallow, and they're like raw and like astringent, and it's like, ah! And I really like them. And the consumer never sees it. It's just a product that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I tried to do in 18 was bridge that gap. It's not a full red. It only had four days, but it was enough. It was tannic. It was crazy acidic. It didn't go through mallow. And it was like a product that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I just want to expose people more to that. Uh, what it, again, it's like I can just make run-of-the-mill bullshit, you know, and sell it and make money. Uh, but again, where's the fun in that? Uh, it's like I want I want to make things that 
that that don't fit into a box that surprise people and kind of shock them because um, again that's what I like to drink you know um, what do you see for, what do you see for the future of Oregon wine in general what is the industry gonna look like in the next decade uh, I feel like there are two divergent uh, markets and again I could be completely wrong you know I'm not an expert in you know the Oregon wine market but it's just what I see uh, what I see is a lot of outside money coming in uh, a lot uh, and I think with Oregon's prominence we're only gonna see more of that uh, and I think we're gonna have um, instead of you know all the people that are in the middle right now I think we're gonna see more of the extremes I think we're gonna see the big money big houses and I think we're gonna see a lot more small people like me and I see small people like me and I'm still tiny like coming up all the time you know and you know I don't see it as competition I think of it as a good thing you know the more of us there are there's strength in numbers and in, in they're going to be like the little people, the little independents, and they're going to be the massive houses. Uh, and, and, and that's what I see. And the massive houses are just going to perpetuate the norm. They're going to be pumping out, you know, Oki Pino and Chard um, and giving that market what it wants. And, and people drink it. People like it. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just what it is. It exists. Um, you know, I'm not saying anything's wrong or right. You know, that would be a pretty shitty thing for me to do. Um, but, you know, people should have, the, you know, the choice of what they want to drink. And I think the only only more people like myself are going to come out and more people that see how successful, you know, we are on the smaller side. More people are going to take that jump into production and start doing it themselves uh, and, and, if, and, and see it as like an inspiration. Be like, hey, I can do this and I can make it work uh, as a business. You know, I'm not a businessman. You know, I'm barely even a winemaker, you know, so, <laughs> but it's somehow it works, you know, so uh, I think the more people see that, the more is going to come up, but it's, it's going to, it's going to polarize for sure. That middle road is, is going to disappear pretty quickly. And if it does still exist, it's going to be owned by somebody else. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like they're going to start buying people up. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. anybody who wants to buy a Libertine, call me. We'll, we'll, we'll post your number Five on the million website. minimum. <laughs> and percentage on the back end, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, last question for you, a little philosophical question for you. What is what is wine's role in society? Uh, you know, there's the default of saying that it brings people together and everybody sits around a table and enjoys wine and blah, blah, blah. Um, it's pretty self-important. You know, I don't what's a wine's role in society? I mean, I think it serves a lot of ego feeding. Uh, I think people like to feel really important by it. Again, vague modifier. Um, but, you know, wine's role, you know, again, you know, you can default all the bullshit. It's an expression of a region, you know. It, it dictates the style of a people in a culture. You know, all of that's true. Um, beyond the, the run-of-the-mill answers, um, yeah, I, again, I'm going to go back to the polarizing answer. I think it's how people define themselves, and it's an expression of how people define themselves. Do they see themselves as part of the elite power structure, or do they see themselves as part of a grassroots individualistic movement? Uh, and 
people buy things that reflect their personalities and themselves. Uh, and, and so it's just another reinforcement of that. You know, it's when I use, I don't do tastings anymore cause I fucking hate it. But anytime I did tastings and like some old, an old couple would come up to me and I know you can just tell by looking at them what they're into. And I'd be like, this is going to be a disaster. And they come up and I get this all the time. Like, like, oh, no. And it's, you know, it's, it's that type of thing. And then there are other people who are like, you know, what the fuck is this is really cool. You know? Um, and, and I think it's that part that, that wine serves is just a reflection of a culture and a people, no matter what it is. Pretty vague, but. I knew you'd have uh, a good answer for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's all the questions we have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover today that you would like to have covered? Um, no, I think we're all good yeah awesome well thank you so much for your time for your stories yeah thank you for listening to me <laughs> anytime <laughs> appreciate it uh, we'll go and let you off the hook yeah great thank you thank you thank you for joining us for this edition of the oregon wine history archive podcast and thank you to all the supporters partners donors and interviewees who have made our project a success be sure to check out our website at oregonwinehistoryarchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.